All persons having business before the Honorable, the Supreme Court of the United States are admonished to draw near and give their attention. Landmark Cases, C-SPAN's special history series produced in cooperation with the National Constitution Center, exploring the human stories and constitutional dramas behind 12 historic Supreme Court decisions. Number 759, Ernest Miranda... Petitioner versus Arizona. We'll hear arguments in number 18, Roe against Wade. Quite often, and many of our most famous decisions are ones that the court took that were quite uh, unpopular. Let's go through a few cases that illustrate very dramatically and visually what it means to live in a society of 310 million different people who help stick together because they believe in a rule of law. Good evening and welcome to C-SPAN's history series, Landmark Cases. Tonight is number 10 in our 12-part series. And you'll hear about the 1962 Tennessee reapportionment case. It was one that Chief Justice Earl Warren called the most important of his tenure. And remember, this is the court that wrote Brown versus Board of Education. We'll learn why during the next 90 minutes. This case began a reapportionment revolution that changed the way seats are allocated on state legislatures and ultimately the Congress. And, of course, that's all about power. We'll learn more, again, as a, uh, from our two guests, and let me introduce them to you. Theodore Olson, Ted Olson, former U.S. Solicitor General, 2001 to 2004, has already argued 60 cases plus before the Supreme Court, including the 2000 Bush v. Gore. Ted Olson, thank you for being with thank us you. tonight. Douglas Smith is a nonfiction author. He's the executive director of the Los Angeles Service Academy, and he's written a book on this case called On Democracy's Doorstep, the inside story of how the Supreme Court brought one person, one vote to the United States. Thanks for being here. Thank you. Well, we're going to begin tonight by listening to Chief Justice Earl Warren in his own words, talking about the importance of this case to the country and to the court. This court held that... Uh the question of whether a person was uh, having equal protection of the, of the laws was a judicial question, and we had the right to decide it. And uh, we held that the legislatures must give equal representation to everyone. That was where the expression one man, one vote came into, uh, into being. In that sense, I, I think that, uh, that that case from which all the other reapportionment cases followed, is perhaps the most important case that we've had since I've been on the court. So, Ted Olson, why would the Chief Justice think of this as the most important case? The decision in this case opened the door for a change in the way we govern ourselves. Uh, states had apportioned power in their state legislatures according to various different methods that in many cases wound up with much more power in rural communities than in urban communities. And as population grew in the cities, the rural communities gained more and more strength so that the power in state legislatures was confined to a smaller and smaller number of people in terms of their representation. So changing how that was done changed how we are governed in this country in a dramatic way. We can only imagine how in a, in a state like California today would look like if the 
rural counties, which are very sparsely um, populated in in the in the north and the east, uh, eastern parts of the state, were governing what happened in Sacramento, as opposed to the people in Los Angeles or San Francisco having an equivalent vote. They didn't then. Um, and so this changed all of that. Our country would be so different today. Doug Smith, the Chief Justice made reference to the famous phrase, one man, one vote. Mm-hmm. And it is often associated with this case, but it really isn't associated with this case. Explain what this case really did. Mm-hmm. Well, this case, um, very simply, although very importantly, said that the federal courts could consider challenges to state reapportionments. Um, they did not set a standard. They did not say that the legislatures ought to be apportioned according to any particular principle. They merely stopped short of anything else other than saying that, the, that, that courts have jurisdi- federal courts have jurisdiction to hear these disputes. As, as Ted points out, with all the demographic change in the 20th century, um, it was, it was, there was extensive change. And so you had, you know, he uses the example of California, had 6 million people in Los Angeles that had the same amount of representation in the state Senate as 14,000 people in a rural part. So it was really, it was quite dramatic. And, I mean, it seems obvious, but would you have put this on a landmark case list if you were drawing it up? Absolutely. Um, There's nothing in the Constitution that says that state legislatures have to be apportioned according to population. In fact, the United States Congress in the Senate is not apportioned that way. So it's embedded in our Constitution that, well, well, the, the congressional districts, as it turned out, would be apportioned that way. Um, Nevada has two senators, and California has two senators. So that disproportionate relationship between population and vote is embedded in the Constitution in some respects. So the justices had to decide, as Doug points out, they first of all had to decide, as they did in this case, we can actually hear the case. Because prior to that, the court had rendered decisions that suggested it's none of our business. We can't find in the Constitution a principle that we're going to apply here. Where is it? And so once they decided in Baker versus Carr that we could actually look at this under the 14th Amendment, that opened the door to the subsequent decisions. But it wasn't by any means self-evident, although a lot of people were starting to agitate for uh, proportionate uh, representation in the state legislatures, it wasn't by any means clear that this was going to be the outcome of that case. And I would, uh, to, to echo that, I think the, the situation had become so severe by the late 1940s, 1950s, I mean, really all across the country, that uh, you had organizations, it wasn't just municipal officials, but you had organizations like the League of Women Voters was all over this issue. And states like Minnesota and, and, and Tennessee, where Baker comes from, the league is, is doing all sorts of work at the local level, and then it goes up to the state level, and then goes before the legislature time and time again to say, you've got to do something about this. I mean, you know, cities like Nashville or Memphis or Minneapolis simply were not getting the, the money that they needed from the state legislature for, for roads, uh, for education, for social services, and were quite starved of funds in a way that, that it became really quite a, a, a serious problem. And but, when you think of it, if you don't mind my saying so, that the... Um, Minorities were concentrated in our urban areas. They weren't the farmers. Uh, so to the extent that um, African-American voters or immigrants and people, poor people were concentrated in the cities with industrial jobs and mm-hmm. so forth, their power was getting um, more and more diminished uh, 
at the expense of the the of the, the people in the less populated communities who are mostly white um, uh, were having more and more power. So it was becoming more and more untenable, it seems to me. We'll get back to that. Once the Supreme Court opened the door to uh, hearing cases about reapportionment, they have heard many more in the decades since. In fact, tonight we have a live camera at the Supreme Court, and you'll be seeing pictures from throughout our program, because tomorrow the court is scheduled to hear another apportionment case. This is Evanwell versus Abbott. It's a Texas case that could further determine the definition of one person, one vote. What's it all about? Well, it's very interesting. Everybody thinks one person, one vote. But what is one person? What do you count when you divide up the state or a congressional district or a legislative district? Are you counting actual number of people? Are you including infants? Are you including illegal immigrants? Are you including all people? Or are you including people of voting age? So the Supreme Court is going to hear argument tomorrow in this case in which the argument is being made, well, we can, we can divide up um, and meet the con- constitutional requirements by counting just people of voting age population as opposed to all people. Now, that makes a big difference because some people don't vote. Um, People that are immigrants don't vote. People that are children don't vote. Um, And in some areas, in this case in Texas, some counties in Texas or some districts in Texas have a larger percentage of people who are signed up to vote or voting age uh, and in other areas. So there can be a disproportionate count. And this case, this issue has not come before the court before. What is it when you say one person? Who are the persons that are in the denominator? And just to make clear, the, the real, the key issue tomorrow is that the, the plaintiffs or the petitioners from Texas are asking the court to require that states apportion based on the number of voters, not make, not allowing it to be an option, but to require it, which is without precedent. I mean, that's, that, that would be quite quite staggering. No cameras in the Supreme Court. I always have to make that pitch, Mr. Olson. Uh, but there is audio recordings. And at this point in our history series, we've begun to work them in. And you'll hear some of the arguments and the justices in their own words because of that. And in tomorrow's case, we will have the audio available on Friday when the court releases it. It wasn't, here. It wasn't until relatively recently that the audio became available immediately after the argument. I think that's what it is probably tomorrow. Uh, it's not contemporaneously. It's immediately after the argument. Is that we're going to keep am, pushing? Am I right? <laughs> yes, but I, th- I think ro- uh, the uh, Bush versus Gore cases was the um, were the first times that the actual audio became available the instant that the argument was over. That so that's true. only you know fifteen years ago. That's right. We, along with other people in news media, petitioned Chief Justice <laughs> Rehnquist at that point to open the the, the case up. We did. Uh, so, uh, but we don't want to get too much ahead of ourselves because let's set the stage in a little more detail about the Baker versus Carr case. And uh, so we talked about the rising uh, urban populations after World War II um, and the fact that there was growing tension between this. But here's the separation of powers question. The people that would, if it was left to the state legislatures, the people that had the power would have to make the decision to give it up. And that doesn't often happen in Congress. So how could the society or the courts expect state legislatures to address this? Well, you're exactly right. And that was the problem that you're essentially asking legislators who who have seats to give up their own 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 seats to somebody else. And State courts would consistently hear cases and say, no, yes, there's a big problem, but no, we can't do anything about it. Only the legislature um, can, can fix itself, basically. And that was essentially 
um, uh, the way things worked, especially after 1946 when, when the Supreme Court, in the case of Colgrove versus Green, essentially said the federal courts cannot get involved. And that was, that was the case that really kept the federal courts out of reapportionment politics until the 1960s. And so they simply wouldn't go near it. And in Tennessee, the legislative districts had not been w redrawn since... 1901. 1901, and this was 1962. And despite, and un Tennessee's state constitution very clearly said that you have to reapportion every 10 years after the census, but they had not done it for 60 years. But so, one of the questions was, what are federal courts telling state the right. state of Tennessee you have to do something about enforcing your exactly. own constitutional provisions? Federal courts don't normally do that. They say, you know, if this is an issue of the state of Tennessee not having complied with its own constitution by not having reapportioned every 10 years, what business is it of the federal courts? So. Well, to make the point, as we've been learning throughout the series, it's a gradual application of the 14th Amendment to more and more areas in the states. And this is another case where that began to happen, correct? Well, not so much the 14th Amendment that Tennessee, correct me if I'm wrong, because you wrote the book, <laughs> um, that Tennessee had to comply with its own constitution, but Tennessee had to comply with the 14th right. Amendment with respect to whether a vote in uh, one person's vote was equal to an, right. or not equal to another person's vote. And, I, and I, I don't want to get too far ahead of the story, but that was essentially the state of Tennessee's defense in this case was, yes, Malapportionment in Tennessee is as bad as you say it is, but it's nobody's business but Tennessee's to fix it. Well, um, you've done a nice introduction because next we're going to hear our first bit of audio, just so you can get the flavor for the arguments in the Supreme Court. And these are the two attorneys arguing the case. One is Baker's attorney. His name is Charles Ryan. And then you'll hear from the state of Tennessee's attorney, who was the assistant attorney general of the state, Jack Wilson. Let's just listen to a little of their arguments in this case. I say there's nothing in the Constitution of the United States of America that ordains, and nothing in the Constitution of, the te of Tennessee that ordains uh, that state government is and must remain an agricultural commodity, and there's nothing in either one of those constitutions that says it takes 20 city residents to equal one farmer. Is it worse for the legislature of Tennessee not to reapportion, or is it worse for the federal district courts to violate the age-old doctrine of separation of powers. So there you hear the arguments. The court has no jurisdiction over this uh, versus the changing population. We have a map that was used to make the argument. I want to show it to the audience at home so they can really see what was happening with the legislative districts in Tennessee and how two-thirds geographically of the state uh, versus the the concentration of power uh, was uh, was presented to the court and how the population had really shifted and the power shifting along with it. So how were documents used in this case? Well, that's an interesting question. So um, the case was originally filed in 1959. Um, by the time it gets to the Supreme Court, there actually is a whole lot of new evidence from the 1960 census that bolsters uh, when Ryan is speaking before, um, before the Supreme Court, especially in the second argument, which I know we'll get to um, in a minute, and they actually used an enormous amount of, of data from, um, from the census, although it wasn't actually until later on in the process when the city of Nashville came into the case and provided a lot of financial resources that the um, attorneys were able to actually employ a lot of that data. In the early stages, they didn't do a whole lot. There were some basic maps um, that showed you know, which certain counties that had you know, what 20,000 people with one representative and another county with 200,000, that sort of thing. But it was, it was 
fairly basic at the, at the initial level. So if you've been watching along the way, you know that one of the things we like most about this program is your participation, and there are several ways you can do that. First of all, you can call us, and the lines are divided geographically, 202-7488-900 and 202-748-8901 if you live in the mountain or Pacific time zones. You can send us a tweet, and if you do, please use the hashtag landmark cases so we can get into the queue here and we'll mix it in. And finally, we have a conversation on our Facebook page. Go to Facebook, uh, C-SPAN's area, and you'll see that there's a conversation already underway. You can join that, and we'll mix some Facebook comments in as well. But uh, you're welcome to get your phone calls in queue here, and we'll work them in with our two special guests. So uh, I want to tell the audience that this has been a story about a people story as much as a legal story. And in this case, Baker and Carr are somewhat lost to history. They're really not the main cases. What we're going to hear about in this is really the drama at the Supreme Court Mm -hmm. itself. And in fact, you tell us later on that there were two two justices whose health was imperiled. They were so mm. passionate about this. Uh, so we're we're going to first learn about Baker and Carr, um, and then we'll, then we'll learn about the makeup of the Supreme Court and why it became so important in this case. So who's Baker? Who's Carr? Well, it's interesting. This is this is one of those cases where neither Baker nor Carr actually had very much to do with this case at all, um, in the sense that they they were not active. Whereas groups in Tennessee, like the League of Women Voters, were actively involved, uh, members of the Republican Party, uh, the chairman of the Republican Party, other officials were named. There were about 12 or 13 plaintiffs. Baker happened, his name came first, alphabetically. Baker himself was a, uh, um, had a local appointment, at a, he was a local office holder in, in the Memphis area. Um, but he really had absolutely nothing to do with the case, other than the fact that he agreed to, to you know, be signed up as one of the plaintiffs. Yeah, and he really didn't go down in the history books. I'll tell you, when we were trying to do some research, it was it was hard to find. Right. And you probably had the same as writing the book about right. it. Right, and, and there was I never never actually even spent much time trying to look for him because it was it was pretty clear early on that he had very little to do with it. And, and Carr was the Secretary of State of Tennessee, and so therefore in that capacity was the head of the whole election machinery. So he was sued in that capacity, but again, didn't really have anything to do with it. He's just sort of a nominal defendant. Right, because exactly. Because going to bring a case against the state, right. you had to have somebody was, to sue. Exactly. So explain the process, Mr. Olson. So we we heard that the U.S. District Court in Tennessee had dismissed the, ground, the case on two grounds in 1959. The court lacked jurisdiction, which is what we're talking about, because it was a political question, and the complaint failed to state a claim on which relief could be granted. So how did, with that finding, how does the case make it to the Supreme Court? Well, this was an appeal, if I, if I remember it correctly, from the three-judge district court, um, and they appealed to the United States Supreme Court. Now, today, most of the... Cases that wind up in the Supreme Court are petitions for review. They call it petition for certiorari. The court can not take the case, and in many cases does not take a case that's presented to it. The court gets something like 9,000 petitions a year and winds up taking 75 cases. This was in a different era when the court had less discretion with respect to whether or not to take a case. And so it was an appeal within the court's jurisdiction, and the court had to decide whether it had jurisdiction to the case or not. Um, but it did decide that it did have jurisdiction, notwithstanding the earlier case that Doug mentioned, mm-hmm. where the court had said, we've got nothing to say about stuff like right. this. So Doug Smith, also between 1959 and 1961, there was a presidential election and mm-hmm. a change in power with President Kennedy coming into office. Mm-hmm. Was the Kennedy administration <clears throat> interested in this case? They were very much so, and and in, as a as a candidate, even before in, as early as 1959, John Kennedy had actually spoken a lot about urban underrepresentation, had 
authored or one of his staff members authored a piece in the New York Times Magazine called The Shame of the States, which really talked about how how much cities were being shortchanged. So the Kennedy administration was deeply interested in this, but it's, I think, crucial um, with Baker to, to recognize that the, the outgoing Eisenhower administration was just as, as interested in it. In fact, when the case comes to the Supreme Court, um, it's, in, it's filed, I think, in May of 1960, and we, we, no one knew at the time, but we know now that the court decided to hold it until they made a decision in, in Gamillion versus Lightfoot, the racial gerrymandering case from Tuskegee. As soon as they hand down that decision in, in November of 1960, a week later, they, they um, said, cite probable jurisdiction in, in Baker v. Carr. Before the Eisenhower administration left, Lee Rankin, who was a solicitor general at the time, had decided to go ahead and join the case as amicus. Uh, now, that decision was not binding on the Kennedy administration, but they were quite happy to do so as well. But I thought, I thought this was a really important point about the case, and one that apparently later actually had a big impact on Potter Stewart, who ends up being the swing vote. When he found out that the Eisenhower administration had been ready to support this as well, that, that made a difference to him. You're listening to C-SPAN's Landmark Cases. We will be back in a moment. So uh, we have four Warren Court cases in our 12-part series, and one mm-hmm. of the things we've learned about this case is the factions on this court and how important they are to the ultimate mm-hmm. outcome, as they always are in courts, I know. But um, particularly, we wanted to talk about the relationship between Earl Warren and William Brennan, who writes mm-hmm. the opinion in this case. We have a, a reflection on that from a gentleman who served as one of uh, Justice Brennan's clerks. He himself became a federal judge, mm-hmm. Abraham Sofair. We're going to listen to him talking about uh, Chief Justice Earl Warren and Justice Brennan and their personal and professional relationship. The Chief Justice Warren and Justice Brennan uh, were not only friends, they were allies. They both had the same approach to uh, issues. Uh, they both had a sense of um, the court's role that was quite generous, but yet somewhat constrained and and principled. They got along not only with each other, but with everybody. No matter what political views a a particular justice might have, if Earl Warren or Bill Brennan walked into their office, they would light up. People were just glad to see these men. Uh, They were uh, generous spirits, uh, intelligent beings, and um, warm, genuinely warm. So however much you might disagree with them about a given thing, it it never got bitter. It never got angry in um, in any nasty way, or virtually never. And uh, the two of them uh, realized they they had these uh, uh, overlapping uh, values and methods and personalities, so they just got along famously. Well, it never got bitter, except the story that you tell is that this was a very, very passionately argued case in, in, in the conference stage. So how did that relationship between the chief and Justice Brennan play out in the ultimate outcome? Well, I think it was actually crucial, and you really see it both in, in the Baker decision, where, as you mentioned a minute ago, Warren actually assigns the case to Brennan, and also looking ahead a couple of years to the rest of the reapportionment cases, when Earl Warren is simultaneously chairing the uh, Warren Commission on President Kennedy's assassination, he actually leans very heavily on Bill Brennan in those years. Um, 
to circle back to Baker, yes, there, the, the court was, there was deep divisions, um, none more so than between William O. Douglas and Felix Frankfurter, who had been, both were appointed to the court within months of each other, and I think in 1939, um, you know, they'd both been on the court for more than, more than 20 years. They were uh, ideological opposites in terms of their, their judicial philosophies. They were both very difficult characters personally. Um, um, the stories are, it sounds like neither one of them was a particularly nice man that you would want to spend a whole lot of time with. And I think after 20 years on the court of butting heads, it really, um, it really came to a head in the deliberations over, over Baker v. Carr. Yeah, and Felix Frankfurter, this ends up being his last dissent. He argues this case passionately. Among, in fact, uh, we'll learn, even spent a summer lobbying between the first and second hearings of the arguments. What can you tell us about Felix Frankfurter? Well, he was um, an appointee of Franklin Roosevelt. Um, but he was, and he was very much a liberal. He'd been involved in the NAACP and he'd been involved in the ACLU. Uh, he was a professor at Harvard, one of the most distinguished um, academics and, and legal thinkers in the United States. But he was a, um, a passionate believer in judicial restraint on the role of judges uh, and concerned that if judges pushed the envelope too far, um, that would be bad for the court and bad for the judiciary and inconsistent with the Constitution. It's interesting, going back for a moment to the Warren-Brennan uh, thing, um, Earl Warren was appointed by President Eisenhower. Um, Brennan, Will, William Brennan was appointed by President Eisenhower. President Eisenhower was later to say something about some of the greatest mistakes he made were these two just justices that turned out to be quite liberal. Um, and here was Justice Frankfurter, appointed by a Democrat, uh, who turned out in those cases, in th this case, in these line of cases, to be quite conservative. He was very, very passionate about the issue. Uh, and I suppose we'll talk about that a little bit more. But that was among the debates. The court... The first time the court heard the case, I think, was argued in April. Um, right. And the court, uh, I think your viewers probably know this, that the court starts hearing arguments on the first Monday in October. Um, and hears arguments every month, October through April, and usually finishes its arguments in April, and then renders its decisions by the end of June. Well, if you have a very hard case like this that's argued at the end of the term, mm. it's sometimes produces bad law because they don't have very much time to decide the case. And in this case, and maybe we'll get into why, but they decided, well, we're not going to decide it um, in that term. We're going to put it over here, arguments again, and decide it next term when maybe we have a little more time. Okay, time for some questions from our viewers. We're going to begin with uh, Jim, who is in Caliente, California. You're on the air. Thank you very much. Um, and uh, Mr. Olson, uh, you mentioned sparsely parts of California, sparsely populated parts of California. That's where I live, uh, about 1,500 people in almost 400 square miles. And my question is, in, in the subsequent years since we've had the rural areas being, being essentially becoming really marginal, um, the cities were, were certainly um, over, uh, overtaxed and underpaid in the earlier times, but I think rural areas today may be getting sort of the same treatment the other way around. And I'm wondering, as I say, if there have been studies or any, uh, anybody's looked into this over the years. Thank you very much. 
Well, Doug might have a better answer than me for that, but I think that's a very important point and a very important question. It isn't self-evident from the Constitution that states can't decide that rural communities where there, there might be agriculture or there might be issues involving, especially in California, water, um, that we want one branch of our government, for example, possibly, like the United States Senate, to have a representation of geography uh, as opposed to simply people. Um, and uh, since the federal government is structured that way, it's not evident, and it hasn't been evident to some of the justices on this whole issue, that it has to be exclusively on the basis of population. And why shouldn't a state be able to decide, I'm asking this rhetorically, why shouldn't a state be able to decide, well, yes, the, uh, the we want to give great weight to the people in the cities, but we also want to give great weight to the people like in an agricultural state that produce the revenue that 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 provides the income for the or the livelihood for the state. Why can't we balance that out? Um, and so your questioner uh, raises that very, very good point. And it has now become very much um, dominated by the the urban areas. That's that's where the power is. And Jim, I just had two things. One is a, one of the great ironies of the story is that as governor, Earl Warren actually took the position almost just that, that you articulated that, you know, California had this system that did balance the representation between the Senate and the House. And he thought it worked pretty well for the reasons that Ted's just outlined. Uh, it's also interesting that and again, not to get too ahead of the story, but because of demographic change, by the time the decisions in Baker and subsequent cases come down, it's actually really suburban voters that ended up gaining the most from, from the representation as opposed to urban voters. Alan. Because people were moving <laughs> out of the cities. Out. Yeah. Alan is in Brooklyn. Hi, Alan, you're on. Thanks very much. I'm hearing a discussion about uh, the propriety of representation based on geography instead of population. And I, I have a question about whether we have to re-examine in 2015 whether we can continue to call ourselves a democracy when we have such unequal voting rights in the Senate. Since the Constitution was established, the voting population of major urban uh, areas has become substantially minority, and many of the most populous states in the United States have a larger minority population than many of the less populous states. So when we examine the fact the Voting Rights Act was passed in 1965, three years after Baker, Baker versus Carr, would they have ever really uh, ruled uh, that this was such a close question if Baker versus Carr were passed, uh, were examined after the Voting Rights Act? And when the whole question of equal representation by minority status was before us, I think the, the dilution of minority voting in the country is as much of a scandal as police uh, abuse of power and over-incarceration. And I think we really have to examine whether we can continue to call ourselves a democracy when Wyoming has a few white people with far more voting power than any of the black people in Los Angeles, Chicago, or New York City. Alan, thank you. Well, I just, I, certainly the, the major issue there is the composition of the U.S. Senate. And of course, that is written specifically into the Constitution, unlike some of these other issues and that the court settles on around these. The, and it was always very clear, even when opponents of a reapportionment would constantly say, well, the next thing you know, the Supreme Court's going to be telling us we have to reapportion the U.S. Senate. But that was never an issue because it is specifically written into the U.S. Constitution. That's the great compromise that would require a constitutional convention or a constitutional amendment. And people might say that, well, we don't call ourselves a democracy. We call ourselves a republic. Um, and that provision in the Constitution um, is there. 
The other thing about the Senate, and it's really it's exacerbated by the filibuster rules, uh, because the, the more you give power to a small number of people in the Senate, you are taking power away from uh, larger numbers mm-hmm. of people. Um, and so it's not just the way the Senate is constructed, but the Senate's rules that give power to a minority of members of the Senate. So that really exacerbates or magnifies the point that your caller um, put, his, put his finger on. Next up is Jesus in St. Louis. You're on. Good evening. Uh, thank you for taking my question. Uh, it's quite an honor to have Mr. Olson on the line right now. Uh, he was one of my inspirations to go to law school and to subsequently pursue a career in appellate litigation. Uh, my question involves the argument being heard tomorrow in Harris v. Arizona Independent Redistricting Commission uh, on equal protection grounds. What effect will that litigation have on the one-person, one-vote principle? Thank you very much. Why don't you take this? Because you, you've spent some <laughs> well, time with and it. Well, I, and I have, I have to actually confess that the, the, there was another case out of Arizona last year that I was familiar with myself. The redistricting the, 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 Right. This, this one I have not actually, I've been so focused on Evan Wall versus Abbott tomorrow, which is the, the Texas case that I actually haven't looked very closely at. So well, I, don't, I, I don't actually don't know well, the answer. Well, the, the one last year, that, and I knew more about that right. one too, I, I wrote a brief in that case. Um, it was a very interesting case at the... The state of Arizona and California has done this right. too. Is to take the redistricting in order to deal with the political gerrymandering right. um, issue out of the legislature and right. put it in the independent commission right. that will use more neutral principles, arguably, to redistrict. Um, and the question in that case was whether or not the state had the power to take it away from right. the legislature because of the way the Constitution is written. I have been focusing on the the earlier case too, so I haven't spent too much time on this. But this is something that's very not just it's it's these kind of cases, um, the redistricting commission type cases, uh, and the voting rights cases, where the question comes back and again and again as to the extent to which you can pack minorities in particular districts um, and so forth. So these redistricting and voting are so inextricably linked. Absolutely. There are cases that are coming back again and again to the courts. Uh, all of these questions from your viewers have been very, very, very good questions. Josh is up next. I'll go into Iowa. Hi, Josh. Hi, thanks for taking my call. Uh, Justice Frankfurter said in his dissent that they should seek relief in the legislative system, not the courts. And, you know, they call this decision an example of the liberal activist Warren Court. But if we have, we, if we had relied on judicial restraint like Justice Frankfurter wanted us to, would we have ever gotten reapportionment, the quote-unquote one person, one vote? And also with judicial restraint, we would never have had uh, Brown versus Board of Education. Well, I think to the, the second point first, I mean, that is, that is a trickier one for, for folks who truly believe in judicial restraint. I think to the, the first, your first part of your question, I think it's a great one, and I don't know, I don't want to I think we're going to talk about the actual deliberations within the court because especially uh, Tom Clark, who was one of the members of the court, he in particular had a change of mind in the middle of this case precisely along the point that you were, uh, that you were just um, discussing. Okay, and so one of me- the questions during, the, uh, I guess maybe I'm getting ahead of it too, was um, what, would the leg- what right. resort does anybody have exactly. in Tennessee? And they, they briefed it and talked about it, and the answer was that, well, you, you, you can petition the legislature. They're not going to do anything. Right. I'm going to take one more call, and then we'll get to the story of the first of two oral arguments in Baker versus Carr. Uh, let's hear from Chip in St. Paul. 
yeah, thank you so much for taking my call. Um, uh, I actually grew up in East Tennessee, and so I had never heard about this case, so that was a bit of a surprise to me that it was Tennessee involved. And the one question I had is, how how could the court... Uh, I'm curious how, how they could compel the Tennessee legislature to reapportion. I mean, I think they could say, uh, Tennessee legislature, you should reapportion, and the legislature should say, we appreciate your advice, and no. Well, that's a great question, and that was at the heart of, you know, part of Frankfurter's rationale for, for his position was that we can't, we can't compel them to do this. And it even comes up later, you know, you thought that the reaction to Brown versus Board was bad in the South. Wait till you see throughout the nation what, what happens when you tell the legislature to do this. What ended up happening is, of course, they leave it up to the district courts to, to enforce, um, enforce reapportionment uh, when the state, when the legislature doesn't voluntarily do it. And it actually, it just, it worked. I mean, the state courts, uh, I'm sorry, the federal courts, federal district courts um, uh, made it happen. And it actually, once, once we get through the decisions, it actually happens fairly, fairly easily. So here are the questions before the court in Baker versus Carr. There are two. First, it's a jurisdictional one. Can federal courts hear a constitutional challenge to legislative apportionment? And the second, what is the test for resolving whether a case presents a political question? The first oral argument was heard over the course of two days, April 19th and 20th, 1961. That's, that indicates the importance of this, two days of oral argument. And uh, the first oral argument uh, was done by Charles Baker's attorneys. Tennessee's attorneys responded on the second day. Now, we're going to hear some uh, audio, again, from the oral argument. But uh, the uh, attorneys for Charles Baker and Tennessee voters, Charles Ryan and Z.T. Osborne. Charles Ryan is an interesting character. He had quite a life. Can you tell us a little bit about him? Sure. Well, he, Charles Ryan, uh, at the time, he was a... He lived here in Washington D.C. Had been a former member of the uh, former head of the American Bar Association. He was a well, he had built a, a pretty lucrative uh, Supreme Court and appellate practice. He was brought onto the case for the for the Supreme Court argument. He was not from Tennessee. He was not part of the original team. Tom Osborne, who you mentioned, along with Walter Chandler and Hobart Atkins, who were from Memphis, Nashville, and and, Ch- and uh, Chattanooga, no Knoxville, sorry, were the three Tennessee lawyers who had really brought this case, filed it. And there was actually quite a bit of um, sort of behind-the-scenes drama when Charles Ryan was brought on because some of the local attorneys were, were, were not exactly happy about that. But Ryan had a reputation. He had connections with the Eisenhower administration. It was seen as, as, a, as a good move to bring him, you know, a big Supreme Court lawyer on for this, for this case. Okay, i got to tell a few other points about his biography because I just found them so interesting. He went on later on to be the head of the American Bar Association, and he helped integrate the ABA by changing its constitution to eliminate the word white from it. And also, during the Nixon-Watergate years, he served as Rosemary Wood's attorney right. for the uh, notorious 18 minutes of missing audio. So quite an interesting life. He died at the age of 91 in Washington, D.C. Okay, the attorneys for Tennessee, uh, we have heard from uh, one of them, Jack Wilson. The other was James Glasgow. What should we know about them? Not a whole lot. They were both uh, assistant attorney generals, um, part of a you know, large attorney general staff who, who took the case, you know, represented the state in the case. And as we heard earlier, the, their argument was pretty straightforward. And, and yes, malapportionment is pretty bad in Tennessee, but there's nothing the federal courts can do about it. Um, All right, let's listen in to a little bit from the first oral argument. The real question here is whether or not you're going to have two classes of citizenship in Tennessee, uh, half slave and half free, or at least one-third uh, free and two-thirds slave, because uh, there is no way that you can get out of this illegal straitjacket without some federal assistance. 
Now, let's get down to bedrock on this thing. If there is discrimination under the 14th Amendment, will it bear examination? Well, you're going to have discrimination. You're going to have to treat one class different from another class, I think. Now, it's uh, recognized in sound law that, uh, of course, there may be reasonable classification under state law. Is there discrimination between classes where there is unequal representation in a state legislature? And this case may turn on that. This case may turn on that very point. We say not. We say that there can't be discrimination in the usual sense. A few of the points made by the uh, competing attorneys in Baker versus Carr in their first oral argument in April 1961. We have a number of people who have been tweeting in about the role of Archibald Cox, who was the U.S. Solicitor General. Here is David Vincent Greco. Archibald Cox insists that SCOTUS must decide whether the bill should be dismissed in the exercise of inequitable discretion. So what was Archibald Cox's role in this? Well, as Solicitor General, um, as Mr. Olson would know about that a lot more than I do, um, he represented the, United, the position of the United States before the court. And what's interesting is we heard a clip from Charles Ryan, who was the lawyer hired by the, by, by the Tennessee plaintiffs. And Ryan's argument actually um, was heavily criticized. Ryan essentially argued that the Tennessee has violated its own state constitution, and therefore uh, the federal government needs to step in, step in to help. And even a, an assistant to the Solicitor General, one of Archibald Cox's assistants, who had started in the Eisenhower administration, wrote a memo criticizing this argument, saying that there, there's no foundation for this argument, and urged Archibald Cox in the United States to take a different position, which was to basically say there is some line again across which one cannot across which one cannot step without violating the Equal Protection Clause. We don't know what that line is. We're not suggesting what the standard is, but there's some level of discrimination that is clearly so out of line. Um, that it would have to violate the, the 14th Amendment. And that's essentially the argument that Cox made before the Supreme Court. He didn't ask them to, to try to define that line, but simply to say that there's clear discrimination here. It's, it, doesn't, it lacks a rational basis. It's invidious. Um, there's no other alternative but for the courts to, to at least hear the case. There's a couple points that are about that. At first place, it was the, a case between people representing Tennesseans and against the state of Tennessee. So the United States government was not a party. Um, in those days, it was relatively less frequent than it is today for the United States to enter into a case with the permission of the Supreme Court to express the views of the United States. Uh, and so Archibald Cox was doing that. He was uh, advocating on behalf of the United States citizens, saying this is wrong. The second point I thought I'd make is that we're, we've been talking about the 14th Amendment without emphasizing the point that what the 14th Amendment provides is that citizens shall not be denied equal protection of the laws. And so the argument here ultimately was treating people's votes differently depending upon where they lived was a violation of equal protection of the laws. But the third point was that, uh, the, to Doug's point, that Archibald Cox was making an incremental step. I think that he felt, well, he did feel, that if we asked the court to go all the way to say we can handle this case, we can take this case and decide whether the constitutional principle was involved and then also decide what the constitutional principle was, was pushing it a little bit too far in terms of getting the necessary five votes to win the case. But if you took it incrementally, and that was what the 
assistant that Doug was talking about, the assistant to the Solicitor General, was saying, let's take it one step at a time. Let's say that, let's argue that the court can at least consider, the courts can at least consider the issue, right. and then they can decide, then decide, and then we'll decide in a later case what the first, what the 14th Amendment principle is. But the first principle was, can the federal courts entertain this issue? Right. And I think there was a genius involved in that, and that was it got the votes necessary without pushing it too far. Right. And when you ag- argue in the United States Supreme Court, you want to make it as easy for the justices to decide in your favor as you possibly can. If you ask for too much, you might get nothing. Right. So the next stage in the process, as uh, you have learned or you know as a lawyer, is that it goes to conference. And the room where the justices meet is uh, a cloistered one. No staff are allowed uh, in that room while the justices are, are debating the cases. We're going to show you what that room looks like. C-SPAN is one of the few organizations that have ever been allowed to have their cameras inside that room. And it looks very much like it d- did back in 1962 when the Warren Court was debating Baker versus Carr. So as we're looking at it, tell us what happened after that first oral argument. So the, the, the Friday after the argument is over, they, they go into conference, and the initial sort of the, the, the justices discussed the cases in order of seniority. At the time, the chief justice went first, down to the most junior. I think that's been reversed since, right? Didn't under the Burger Court, isn't, doesn't the chief no. justice go last now? No. He still goes first? No, he okay. still goes first and it goes down. All right, so, so the, there, was, there weren't any real surprises for the first, first seven, uh, basically. Chief Justice Warren, Justice Brennan, Justice Hugo Black, and William O. Douglas all side with the Tennessee plaintiffs here. Black and Douglas, I should point out, had descended vigorously from Colgrove versus Green back in the 40s. So they actually believed as far back as 1946 that there was a 14th Amendment issue here that the court should consider. Brennan and Warren joined them and to an extent sort of suggesting that the federal court should get involved. Frankfurt, of course, most passionately dissented. He was joined by John Marshall Harlan, who was another Eisenhower appointee, and Tom Clark, who was a Truman appointee and had been the former attorney general of the United States, had come uh, from Texas. So there wasn't any great surprise there. It was sort of four to three when we get to the last two members of the court where the drama really begins. And the next in line would have been Charles Whitaker, who had uh, been appointed to the court in 1957 by President Eisenhower. And unlike most of his peers who had been United States senators and governors and, and, and pretty high-profile people, Whitaker had been a, a um, prominent in, Saint, in, in Kansas City but was, was very much a regional, regional attorney. He had been put on the, on the district court, then the appeals court, and the Supreme Court very rapidly. And he was someone who, who, from the beginning, really struggled to keep up with the pace and I think had a lot of self-doubt about his own, his own ability to contribute. And Whitaker was really torn. Whitaker had, at, at argument, during the argument, had, expressed, had asked some questions which suggested he actually had a great deal of sympathy for the Tennessee petitioners and given a lot of hope to the folks filing the case. Um, and, he, and as he expressed this in conference, he, he suggested that, that he thought that, you know, that this really was, that this was, there was so much discrimination here that this court should step in. But he said, this is such a big case, I don't really want to be the fifth vote. I'm not sure that, that I can do that. This apparently set Felix Frankfurter off. And, and according to Justice Black, who later told his clerks that Frankfurter spent four hours berating Whitaker. Now, in Bre- conference. That's, that's what Black over? says. Brennan says it was 90 minutes. But so I don't even think, still, but can he, you exactly. imagine Felix Frankfurter for 90 well, minutes? And you saw, <laughs> your, your viewers saw the, you see the courtroom, and you see that there's copies of the Supreme Court reports are on the back. Apparently, Frankfurter was going and pulling off volumes out of, and reading and really lecturing Whitaker, really, really belittling him. Whitaker ultimately decided, you know, temp- tentatively cast his vote with Frankfurter, and that left Potter Stewart, who was the newest member of the court, another Eisenhower appointee. 
And Stewart was really on the fence. He really, he had serious doubts that even if, they, if the court allowed the district courts to hear cases, he didn't think that on the merits that the petitioners could ever win, but he recognized that there was a problem, but he wasn't willing to make up his mind. So they waited another week, went back into conference. He said, I really don't know what to do on this. Can we re-argue it in the fall? So that's actually why the case was re-argued in October, because it was, there was a 4-4 split, and Potter Stewart asked for it to be put over till the next, the next term. So it might be worth mentioning that they do not have that kind of conferences no. anymore. There's no three-hour haranguing that goes right. on. They're relatively short. They, no. they do the votes. They explain what their decisions are to their colleagues. Now, none of us know right. because none of us have been in that room. Only the nine justices are in the room. The most junior justice sits by the door. If anybody has a message or wants to get a, a book or something from the outside, the junior justice has to answer the knock on the door. Um, but they don't have these long harangues anymore. Yeah, but uh, you saw extensive notes. Uh, so people, they, they were keeping, the justices were keeping notes about what's going on there. They gave you a, a real chance to tell the story of what sure. was happening. Well, every, every justice decides, a, a, every justice takes whatever notes he wants. And also, as uh, Ted and I were talking about earlier, every justice decides what to do with those. I mean, Hugo Black famously had all of his conference notes burned upon his retirement because he felt like what went on in the conference room was sacrosanct and should not be shared. Byron White, uh, who was on the court later, also destroyed his notes. Others um, are available in various libraries around and, the country. Good for historians yes, like you, exactly. right? So the court, uh, the second argument was argued uh, was scheduled for October 9th, 1961, and uh, our guest Doug Smith tells the story in his book that Felix Frankfurter. I'm going to use the colloquialism, was gunning for bear. He spent the summer preparing yeah. for this, and we'll learn what happens next. I want to take a few calls before we get to okay. that. Let's hear next uh, from Ron, who is in Oxford, uh, Minnesota. No, no, sorry, Oxford, New Hampshire. I'm sorry. Go ahead, please. Uh, yeah, I had a quick question about the gerrymandering, uh, gerrymandered districts. Um, but I, I wanted to correct something that was said earlier on uh, about the Senate representation in, in Congress. That's that's an entrenched clause in the Constitution. You can't change that with, a, with an amendment. So we're going to have that forever, <laughs> at least as long as the, the Constitution is in effect. But uh, on, on gerrymandering, is, is there a, uh, any, are there any uh, principles between this case and gerrymandering cases? And uh, just generally discuss the, the, the similarities and differences between those two issues. Sure. There, yeah, there's an absolute connection. In fact, at the height of all this, the, the New York Times um, wrote an editorial once in which they referred to the twin evils of malapportionment and gerrymandering. And, of course, today we, we talk about gerrymandering all the time, I think in part because once malapportionment is addressed, I mean, gerrymandering has been around for a long time, but it became even more necessary. I mean, once you require equal populations, then, then it becomes necessary to start drawing increasingly funny lines in order to get the results. So, yes, there's a definite connection. The justices in the later reapportionment cases were very much aware that they were not tackling the issue of gerrymandering that it would continue to be an issue, but they felt that the malapportionment was by far the more serious issue at, the, at that time. And the most recent, what they call now political gerrymandering cases as opposed to racial, um, the most recent case to involve that, the justices were not able to come to a conclusion. They basically said, and the majority finally said, we're not going to get into that because right. there aren't standards. The same, Some of the same arguments, as you were saying, Doug, um, what is the standard uh, pursuant to which we would decide that some a political party uh, rearranged things so that they would have the advantage of when the, in the drawing of these districts, the justices were saying, well, it is a political process. And so politics getting involved in it is not too surprising. They have declined. 
uh, unlike this area, they've declined to get into right. the thicket, so to speak. Exactly. Gary is in Macon, Georgia. Hi, Gary. Thank you for taking my call. My call is specific to, very similar to the previous caller, Baker v. Carr spawned a number of other decisions as related to one one uh, one man, one vote. Specifically, uh, Gray versus Sanders mm-hmm. with Macon, uh, with the state of Georgia, with the county unit system. Uh, could you speak to some of the cases that were spawned as related to Baker v. Carr, specifically the elimination of the county unit system in the state of Georgia? Yeah, we will. And if I'm going to entice you to stay with us for about another 15 minutes, because our final segment will be the legacy of this decision, including the immediate spate of cases that the court took up. So thanks for asking that question. Let me get to Judith in Anchorage, Alaska, and then we'll get to oral argument number two. Hi, Judith, you're on. Thank you very much. My question is this. I understand that the court, though, still allows significant variation in districts by like up to 10%. So I live in a state, in a district that have been consistently overpopulated, while other districts in my state have been consistently overpopulated. So over the course of the 40 years that I've lived here, you can add those up together and you can see I've pretty effectively been, you know, deprived of a vote. Why does it allow such a huge variation? Thank you. Right, well, and I don't know the specifics in Alaska as it plays out now, but this was certainly at the heart of the issue is how, you know, how exact can you draw districts? And the court certainly made it very clear that they should be as equal as possible. And I think 10% has sort of evolved to be the maximum deviation that would be allowed. I mean, back in, in... in the early 60s, the deviations were far, you know, they were, they were 50%, 100%, sometimes several hundred percent. So 10% would have been considered actually pretty small. Um, again, I don't, and I, I, I just don't know the specifics of, of the case that you're, uh, situation that you're talking about. One of the things that the justices are concerned about in allowing a little bit of play in the joints is to allow geographic integrity, like a particular city or community, um, that political boundaries that right. so all the people in that particular area might have something in common so that it isn't exact, it doesn't have to be exact by the number. And, and um, between uh, decennial censuses, uh, you know, the populations change a lot in certain districts. And so there, if you start in 1950 and get to 1960, there's going to be a change right. um, in the population of a particular district just by virtue of changes in population. Okay, let me get to oral argument number two. One of the little small court historical things you mentioned, then it was argued the second time, it, it was argued it's set for 10 a.m., and it's the first time in the court's history that they heard an argument before noon. That's right. now standard for 10 a.m. It's now it? standard. In fact, very seldom are they in the afternoon. And by the way, you mentioned before, the first one went three and a half hours over two days. Um, it w- would not happen today. I mean, in, you know, in the 20s and, and earlier, the, the arguments would go on a lot longer. But um, it's now, with very few exceptions, one hour per case, half an hour per side. Now, once in a while, they change that. The Obamacare case was was a, a number of hours over a couple of days. But right. this was very unusual. And they always start at 10 o'clock in the morning Uh, at least for the first argument of the day. So as we said, Justice Felix Frankfurter, who was passionate about this, was well prepared for the second oral argument, and he dominated it. That's correct? 
Well, he certainly, he was ironically or, or unexpectedly not very active in the first argument. He didn't have a lot to say. The second time around, he, Archibald Cox later joked that, that Frankfurter had spent the entire summer waiting, waiting for him. Frank Cox had actually been a student of Frankfurter's at Harvard, and so Frankfurter seemed to have particular ire uh, directed at, at the Solicitor General. So yes, the, the, um, uh, Frankfurter had, had spent the entire summer working on a memo, which essentially becomes his dissenting opinion. Uh, he had already written it before the before the case was was heard, uh, with the with the exception of a few few pages that he added later on. But. We're going to hear two back to back clips. The first one is Felix Frankfurter, Justice Frankfurter, as he spars with the attorney we heard about earlier, Charles Ryan, who was representing Baker in the case. Let's listen. From my point of view, if you are right, from my point of view, if you are right, I see no difference between writing into a constitution equal representation and not writing in it so far as the 14th Amendment is concerned. Well, Where, 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 this is essential, where the state power, which is ultimately lodged in the highest court of a state in construing a constitutional provision, says there's no legal right. Well, Mr. Justice Frankfurter... Well, I have to think about, not saying this case, this well, I have to think about Maryland, which I'm told is... Manifoldly more disparate than this, I have to think of a lot of states and not say this is just Tennessee. For me, this is the United States, not Tennessee. Well, I would say, Mr. Justice Frankfurter, the main thing we have to think about here is, is voting rights and disparagement and degrading and dilution of those rights uh, all over the United States of America. I grant you that this is a rotten situation that exists in most of the states and that it's destroying the integrity of state government. But the only way to restore that integrity is to carry out voting rights, and that is the very point that we're making here. A, a bit of the argument and the second hearing of this case in October of 1961. We're going to move right on to Justice William Brennan as he has an exchange with Tennessee's Assistant Attorney General Jack Wilson. Well, if my uh, arithmetic is any good, uh, based on more having a voting population of 2,340, I think these are 1950 figures, and Sequatchie, about 600 more, 2,904, it appears that Moore has a total representation, that Senate and your lower house, of two, and Sequatchie, 600 larger, of 0.63. In other words, Moore apparently has about three times uh, the representation as Sequatchie, although it's the smaller of the two counties. Maybe. Now, what, how, how could that be justified if they're both rural counties? What would be the factors which perhaps you might justify a disparity rural cities, but how do you do it uh, among rural Mayor, counties? Mayor, court, uh, we have interposed a plea of sovereign immunity here. And no, these, no, I, no, this is on the same premise that, uh, the same premise that Mr. Justice Black took to you, that this is a justiciable question. Well, may it please the court, even so, the appellees here are not authorized speak for the state of Tennessee or to explain or to justify why the legislature has not done this? What are you hearing there, Mr. Olson? Well, it's a lot like what happens today. Um, when you go back that far, the justices um, did not interrupt as often as they do today. Uh, in fact, if you listen to some of the recordings of the arguments from the 50s and the 60s, there's long periods of time when 
the advocate is allowed to just make their arguments. Um, so when I was listening to this, I was thinking this is very much like it is today when eight of the justices, at least, almost hours participate in an argument, and they can be very aggressive. They can interrupt one another. They can certainly interrupt the advocate. I've been asked 50 or interrupted 50 to 60 times in the course of 30 minutes, and the justices are, they don't do it so much in conference, but they do it in oral argument. They're arguing with their colleagues. They're trying to make their points using the, the, the lawyer as a foil, um, and so this was tough going. Now, you saw also that Justice Brennan, although he was very persistent, had a much softer tone mm-hmm. uh, because that's he was quite a gentleman. Justice Frankfurter was a very aggressive guy. And so you saw, I thought I thought it was very interesting to watch or listen to well, that. Well, and I hear a couple things there. One interesting note is that uh, in the entire three-and-a-half-hour argument, William O'Douglas asked only one question. It was at the very beginning, and it was specifically intended to needle Felix Frankfurter. Um, about this case. Here, the, the two clips really, I think, highlight quite well um, two things that are quite important. The first one, Frankfurter is really taking apart Ryan's case, the one that even the assistant to the Solicitor General had identified as, as the weakness of, of Ryan's case, which is that, you know, so what if, if Tennessee's situation is bad, the federal government doesn't have the right to just step in? Brennan, by contrast, is identifying an issue that really gets to the heart of where Tom Clark ultimately comes down this case. What Brennan is saying is, it's not just a matter of, you know, re- giving rural areas more representation because maybe they have other interests, whatnot. He said even within the rural areas, there's no rhyme or reason to it. What Tom Clark later, later refers to as a crazy quilt. He's saying, you know, one rural district has this many and this district has this many despite having less representation, uh, le- less population. So uh, how many hours of oral argument the an- second time? Another, another three hours. I mean, it was, and, and when we get to the state reapportionment cases, we're not going to have much time to talk about it, but there were six of them in one term, and they all had three to four hours. Of, I mean, they, the court spent close to 30 hours on reapportionment in a two-year period. And That's even amazing. in this one case, hundreds of pages of amicus briefs that the, yes. were filed for it as well. So on to conference. The vote is taken, and this one comes out finally at 6-2. So tell us the story. It, only eight it, now. You're going to have to tell right. us why it, there are only eight votes. It ends up 6-2, but it starts out, and the, the conference initially was actually, I think, a lot less dramatic than the fr- previous conference because most people had made up their mind. Uh, Potter Stewart tentatively comes down on the side of, of uh, Brennan, Black, Douglas, and, and Warren. He, he Again, he still doesn't think that actually the, on the a trial on the merits will go anywhere, but he actually thinks that there, the, there might, the, courts should have, the lower courts should hear the cases. So it's very tentatively 5-4. to four. With that in mind, Warren has to decide who to write the opinion. Uh, for that reason, he doesn't pick Douglas because Douglas, he knows, has been arguing for you know equal population since the 40s. Um, considers um, Black and Brennan, and actually consults with both Douglas and Black, and they all decide that Brennan would be the right the right choice. As you, you pointed out, Brennan's tone there at the end it's it's much more sort of gentle, moderate, um, and they know that Stewart's vote is tenuous. That it's a it's a fair. It's they have to hold on to him. So Brennan writes a very very narrow opinion, in which, as we've said earlier really only issue, um, gets to the issue of, of jurisdiction and whether or not... We haven't said it yet, but the, when the vote is, takes place, if the chief justice is in the majority, right. he assigns, he or she, would assign the opinion writing to himself, herself, or whoever they want to do. If, if, if the chief justice is not in the majority, then the senior most justices does the assignment. There's a lot of politics involved in that. Really was here because Justice Brennan was one of the younger members of the court, least experienced members of the court. Um, and But part of that was, as Doug was saying, um, uh, 
Chief Justice Warren wanted the opinion to be written very carefully, very narrowly, so that he could hold the majority. Okay, so I'm now at the only 30 minutes mark, so we're going to have to um, move through, through a lot of big things sure. here. But why were there That's only right. eight votes? Well, there are only eight, there are only eight votes because um, Charles Whitaker, who had had a lot of difficulty the first time around, um, continued to have difficulty with the case. He actually said at a conference that he had, he had written two diametrically opposed opinions, arguing both sides of the case, ultimately decided to vote with Frankfurter. Um, so the case was five to four. Um, Douglas was eager to get the decision down in February, but the Chief Justice and Justice Brennan and Justice Clark went off to a, a conference for 10 days. And so while they were away, Frankfurter asked Tom Clark to write a dissenting opinion on the issue of remedies that were available to Tennessee. Tom Clark after he gets back from the judicial conference, sits down to write that. And one of the most amazing documents in the whole trove is, is, is Clark's very polite letter to Felix Frankfurt saying, Felix, I've sat down to write the dissent that you suggested, but I've come to the conclusion that, that there is no alternative for the petitioners in Tennessee. They've tried everything. The federal courts offer the only um, possibility. Therefore, I regret to um, uh, ask you to permit me to withdraw from your, from your dissent. So Clark switches votes. Whitaker, meanwhile, we now know, um, suffered from pretty severe anxiety and depression and was having a really difficult time. It's not, we shouldn't, I don't think we should go so far to say that Baker you know, drove him to a, a breakdown, but clearly it was a, a major factor. And uh, after joining Frankfurter's opinion on March the 6th, I think he actually ended up checking himself into Walter Reed Hospital. And 10 days later, um, it became clear that he was really quite severely disabled uh, the Chief Justice arranged for him to um, retire with full benefits. And so he actually, in the last days of the decision-making process leading up to Baker, was no longer part of the court. And so his name was removed from, from the dissenting opinions. Clark switched to make it six. Whitaker dropped off the court. So all of a sudden, it was a, it was a six to two decision. In fact, sadly, you tell the story that his son, who went to visit him, thought that his father was even suicidal from right. the stress uh, and, and the depression. Uh, so the court made a 6-2 decision, and here are some of the words from this. Here's Justice Brennan's opinion, uh, and he wrote, uh, the mere fact that the suit seeks protection of a political right does not mean it presents a political question. The complaint's allegations of a denial of equal protection present a justiciable constitutional cause of action, those are the key words, upon which appellants are entitled to a trial and a decision. The right is asserted. The right asserted is within the reach of judicial protection under the Fourteenth Amendment. And uh, let me also read to you from Justice Frankfurter's dissent, which you said he had been working mm -hmm. on for months. The court's authority, uh, possessed of neither the purse nor the sword, ultimately rests on sustained public confidence in its moral sanction. Such feeling must be nourished by the court's complete detachment in fact and in appearance, from political entang entanglements and by abstention from injecting itself into the clash of political forces and political sentiments, settlements. Uh, we're going to go to the Library of Congress, and uh, here are some of the notes from that conference, and it will tell us more about Justice Frankfurter's view of the case. Let's watch. Justice Felix Frankfurter had a general belief in judicial restraint, which meant that he didn't believe the courts should be intervening in political questions, so something like political reapportionment would be saved for Congress or the state legislature and not the judiciary. Today we'll be looking at papers from our Supreme Court justice collections uh, related to Felix Frankfurter's thoughts on the Baker v. Carr case. And what we'll start with are conference notes written by William O. Douglas documenting one of the first conference meetings the justice had after the first argument. 
The first two opinions you can see are Chief Justice Warren and Hugo Black, who are in favor of reapportionment, and the third is Felix Frankfurter, who is dissenting from their opinions. And here he says, the Tennessee Constitution has nothing to do with the case. This must be a violation of the federal constitution. And on the other side, he says, all these factors are not capable of being determined by courts. Not one state is free of gerrymandering. How can courts determine what f- is fair in this area? Subject matter is not proper for judicial inquiry. Our second document is from February 1962, a year after, uh, roughly a year after the court conference. And what you have here is an example of Frankfurter crystallizing and refining his thoughts, coming up with an, a dissent. And this, what we have here is an excerpt that he has inserted into his dissent. Uh, and this is from the William J. Brennan papers, though it is Frankfurter's thoughts. And you can see here, he says, in effect, today's decision empowers the courts of the country to devise what should constitute the proper, comp- proper composition of the legislature of the 50 states. If state courts should, for one reason or another, find themselves unable to discharge this task, the duty of doing so is put on the federal courts or on this court if state decisions do not satisfy this court's notion of what is proper districting. Frankfurter was concerned that this was something the court was not equipped to do. It had no mechanism, no plan for reapportionment, and down the line it would lead to bigger problems that the court was not really made to decide or to intervene on, and that this was Congress's responsibility, not the court's. And Doug Smith, you tell the story in your book that just one week after the Baker v. Carr decision, Justice Frankfurter had a major stroke and never returned to the court, and you wrote, Baker v. Carr claimed its second victim. Right. And again, you know, we cannot be sure exactly what role Baker played, but it was just a week after the decision was handed down that, that Frankfurt, Frankfurter did suffer that stroke, and he never fully, he never recovered sufficiently to be able to return to the court. Okay, gentlemen, we've had a lot of questions um, and on Twitter, and we had a caller wanting to know about the subsequent cases. I'm going to put them all on the, on the screen, and then we're going to talk about the importance of it. So uh, this case was the first of many, in, uh, altogether eight cases that they heard. And the first two of those were Gravy Sanders, uh, that was argued in January of 63, decided in March of 63, Westbury versus Sanders. Both of those were Georgia cases, and we had a Georgia caller. And it was Gravy Sanders where the one-person, one-vote concept came through. And uh, some language from that, the conception of political equality from the Declaration of Independence to Lincoln's Gettysburg Address to the 15th, 17th, and 19th Amendments can mean only one thing, one person, one vote. And then later on, a whole series of cases uh, from New York, Alabama, Maryland, Virginia, Delaware, and Colorado, all uh, decided on the same day, June 15th, 1964. So what do people need to know, gentlemen, from both of you about this whole series of cases and what they did? Sure. So since you, since you mentioned and the caller asked about Gravy Sanders, uh, which was technically not a reapportionment case that challenged the county unit system in Georgia, which basically, rather than... In, in statewide elections such as governor, instead of the winner being determined by the overall um, popular vote, Georgia would assign a certain number of units to each county. And so whoever won that particular county's vote would win the units. The problem was that Georgia had so many counties that, that the rural counties could, it didn't matter how many people the, the candidate won, you know, how many votes the candidate got in the rural, in the urban areas, they, the rural areas would always dominate. And this was a key component in, in white supremacy and Jim Crow. So in Gravy Sanders, the court strikes down the county unit system with the language that you just said. And that's William O. Douglas's opinion. And so he was the first person to use the phrase one person, one vote. And I think it's really 
interesting, given the case that we're going to hear tomorrow in the Supreme Court, that a law clerk suggested that Douglas change that to one voter, one vote, and he declined. And he said, no, we're sticking with one vote, one person, one vote. And it's also interesting that, that people usually refer to this as one man, one vote. Even Earl Warren said at the beginning, but Douglas wrote one person, one vote, uh, very, very specifically. Moving on, though, then the cases that you, that you recommend are all, these are all the state reapportionment cases that come in the wake of Baker. There are cases filed in about 40 different states, um, all of which have different facts, uh, different histories, but they all ask the same basic question, what is the standard for reapportionment required by the Equal Protection Clause? And so each of those cases represents a different set of facts, but they all come together the court hears all six of the arguments in the 1963 term, uh, and four of them in November, uh, and then the others soon, soon thereafter. And those are the decisions that are handed down in June where they declare that, to the surprise of a lot of people, that all legislative chambers, so both branches of a state legislature, must be apportioned uh, according to the principle of one person, one vote. Not You can't have a sort of little federal system where one, one branch is based on population and the other on other factors, which is what a lot of people thought would happen. No, I think then, and I can't explain it better than, than Doug just did. I mean, it, it, it caused a revolution in government in our country. The, the court easily could have come up with other solutions that weren't exactly um, uh, organized according to population and one person, one vote and that sort of thing. There are lots of things that states could reasonably decide were factors in how to allocate one house or both houses of the legislature, but all that was blown away. Um, and, and it's hard to imagine what this country would be like or what political crises we may have had be, because of the system and the continued exacerbation of that system of smaller numbers of people having greater greater concentrations of power. For example, uh, I mean, I'm going to move through sure. this quickly. Uh, EP uh, West Virginia law writes, if it was not an equal protection issue, what would stop a state from creating a district of only 10 voters? Well, and, and examples <coughs> like that were, were proposed. And, and uh, I think that the, the one, one point I just want to add to that is that we talked about Whitaker and Frankfurter having to step off the court. They were, they were replaced respectively by Byron White and Arthur Goldberg. And without those two changes, there's no way the court at that particular time would have embraced one person, one vote in both branches of the legislature because they were two of the six votes for, for that sweeping of a standard. But this was by no means universally hailed. And in yeah. fact, Congress, the member, members of Congress uh, who were opposed to it immediately sought legislative solutions. What happened? Well, and this is, to me, one of the most interesting parts of the whole story and the one that I knew absolutely nothing about um, prior to this. But yes, beginning that day, there were a whole series of bills and resolutions introduced in the, in the House and the Senate to try to overturn the decision one way or another, to strip the Supreme Court of all jurisdiction and, and anything having to do with reapportionment. Uh, there was efforts to, you know, to write a constitutional amendment, uh, to pass a constitutional amendment, which eventually all these disparate forces came together and sort of began to work together to try to make this happen under the leadership of Everett Dirksen, who was the Senate Republican minority leader, senator from Illinois, who proposed uh, amendments sort of three years in a row, which essentially would have allowed legislatures to, to adopt the little federal plan, population in one branch, other factors in another. Um, because that was really, at the end of the day, uh, that was the issue that I think people had the most difficult time coming to terms with. You know, Alabama, which hadn't reapportioned in 60 years, people thought, okay, fine. But Colorado, which only reapportioned two years earlier, a lot of, a lot of people thought, well, what's wrong with that? You know, the voters of Colorado chose this system. So Dirksen led a campaign, tried three times to get a constitutional amendment through the Senate, got 
58 votes, more or less, every time, but never got the two-thirds that were necessary. So then they um, took the campaign to the states and, and tried to um, get enough state legislatures to call a, a petition for a constitutional convention, which, of course, is allowed under Article 4, but has never actually happened. And but they came close, they, didn't they? They came close. We have so, a map here then, and he made it to 33 states of the 34 necessary. 33 of the 34 necessary. Now, I should add that by the time they got to 32, 33, there was a lot of dispute uh, whether some of those petitions maybe weren't actually valid because the legislatures that passed those had not re- first reapportioned. It, it, was a, it was potentially an enormous mess. And the other issue is, well, a constitutional convention, who says we can only limit it to this one issue? Does the entire, is the entire Constitution up for grabs now? Uh, so it was, it was a potentially disastrous or, or I guess, on your, depending on your point of view, um, history-making uh, event. But just shows you how great the passions were about yeah. this because someone like Everett Dirksen saw downstate Illinois Absolutely. power being ceded to Chicago. and Absolutely. And, and Illinois' two senators, Everett Dirksen and Paul Douglas, who was the other senator who was from Chicago, they almost, the two of them sort of epitomized the issue of, of reapportionment. For Douglas was from Chicago, Dirksen was from downstate. They had very different interests at heart, even though they both represented the entire state. And they, they actually led the two forces on either side of, of, of the issue. So it was, a, for five years this played out, until 1969 when Wisconsin declined to become the 34th state, and then Dirksen actually died unexpectedly, and that sort of took the wind out of that sale. And by then, most states had actually reapportioned. And it shows you what, you know, that how time has gone by. It couldn't happen now. You wouldn't have 30 states, you know, signing up to amend the Constitution to do this. It's so, somewhat like Brown versus Board of Education. You, you can't go back. One, even as close as it is, or as close as it was, and as contentious, mm-hmm. once it happens public accepts it, and we go on. So I'm going to have one more video for you from Errol Warren, the Chief Justice, also talking about this case, and then we'll spend our last 12 minutes or so with your questions um, and kind of putting a bow around this whole discussion uh, as we close out here. So let's listen to Chief Justice Errol Warren. I think the uh, reapportionment, not only of state legislatures, but of representative government in this country, is perhaps the, uh, the most important issue we have had before the Supreme Court. If everyone in this country has uh, an opportunity to participate in his government on equal terms with everyone else and can, can uh, share in electing representatives who will, will be truly representative of the entire community and not some special interests, that uh, most of these problems that we're now confronted with would be solved through the political process rather than through the courts. And as you mentioned shortly thereafter, then the voting rights legislation in the Congress, so there was really a revolution in this country about the way people were electing their representatives. Uh, So let's talk a little bit with our viewers about what they want to hear about. We're going to begin with Barry in Dothan, Alabama. You are on the air, Barry. Go ahead, please. Uh, yes, um, I would like uh, the commentators to discuss the uh, Justice Harlan's dissent in Reynolds v. Sims, where he establishes conclusively uh, that the uh, history of the 14th Amendment, that those people uh, all were clear that the federal government would not get involved in the uh, electoral processes of the state. Uh, 
And uh, you might be interested to note that Archibald Cox, who was amicus in Reynolds v. Sim, later said that the reapportionment cases are a drastic example of reading into the generalities of the due process and equal protection clauses notions of wise and fundamental policy which are not even faintly suggested by the words of the Constitution and which back substantial which lack substantial support and other conventional sources of law. So how do you how do you get rid of the legislative history of the fourteenth Amendment, which I believe Harlem was right is conclusive, and reach this decision in Reynolds v. Sims. All right, thank you. Um, well, it's a, a good question, and, and you're right. Harlan was the only the only member of the Warren Court to dissent from all of the reapportionment cases, um, even the Alabama case, which which came down eight to one. And Harlan was very much in the Frankfurter mold in that sense. He was the one true sort of uh, most like person most like minded after Frankfurter Frankfurter left the court. And and you're right. He did he did root his argument in sort of the reading the history of the of the ratification of the Fourteenth Amendment. I think the the answer is that there were eight other members of the court who saw it a little bit differently and 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 thought that that, that was not the stumbling block that Harlan did to to stepping into this issue, which they thought had become so unmanageable. Also, this will frame into it. Uh, this is an AP government teacher who wants you to answer this question for his students. Is the Baker v. Carr case an example of judicial restraint or judicial activism? Well, uh, people use those terms um, to identify the cases that they like or don't like. If it's judicial activism, if you don't like the outcome of the case, it's judicial restraint if you do. Um, the point that I does tie into this, the, what does the 14th Amendment mean? It, the, the, the Supreme Court of, of very, in various different times with various different backgrounds of the justices have construed the 14th Amendment according to what they perceive its principles to be as opposed to its exclusive legislative history, which had to do with slavery. Um, the 14th Amendment now stands for proposition including uh, all kinds of different rights. Um, and if you go back to what the framers of the 14th Amendment were actually thinking about, you can't get to a lot of these decisions, but that's not the way the court has determined to construe the 14th Amendment. Larry in Englewood, Colorado. Well, thank you for another important episode. You know, I, I wonder if the timing and the nature of tonight's case, uh, others related to it, and civil rights uh, movement and ultimate passage of the civil rights bill, if it really isn't kind of representing uh, the cleaning up of the failed uh, post-Civil War reconstruction a bit of business and Wondered how much time was wasted between then and these cases. What occurred? Thank you. Well, that's that's a that's a great question. I think certainly certainly we continue to grapple with these issues today. Tomorrow, the case the court will be hearing more cases. They're constantly listening to voting rights cases. I mean, it's certainly it's an it's a never-ending process, one that we have to continue to keep uh, working at to try to uh, figure out how to make our democracy real. Oh, it's not just our democracy, but the principles of the Declaration of Independence and the Gettysburg Address and the 14th Amendment of the concept of equality. Uh, we have never been a very perfect country mm -hmm. with respect to living up to those ideals. And I think a lot of it is that the justices are struggling in the context of today uh, or yesterday's today um, of what that really means uh, and what it re really means to our citizens. It comes up in the context of who can serve on juries. 
uh, and who can be excluded from juries. It comes up in all kinds of different ways. The justices, I think, if there's anything consistent, uh, you see a thread of of the court attempting to live up to the ideals of of America not just in a particular statute or a particular constitutional provision. So here's a question for you from Courtney on Twitter, who says, if Gravy Saunders states one person, one vote in states, why does the Electoral College still apply federally for president? Because it's written into the Constitution. When you were talking about the unit system in Georgia, I mean, in a sense, um, that's what the Electoral College uh, system does. Now, courts... The, the states can divide up their electoral college votes. Um, that doesn't have to be one winner-take-all. Uh, winner right. right. But the electoral college is going to stay in the Constitution. And you, and you might think about what a close election would be like if we had to recount um, the entire nation as opposed to a single state, which right. is what the electoral college allows you to get away with doing. Jack is in Wilmington, North Carolina. Hi, Jack. Hi. Yes, I just uh, would like to hear some commentary on the problem, the practical problem we've run into wherein uh, state legislatures, when redistricting, are slicing and dicing counties because uh, in terms of political efficacy, virtually everybody knows what state they live in and what county they live in, and after that, it all becomes a blur. So we're changing the lines every 10 years. We're having elections, changing the people in office. And the average person doesn't have any idea which Senate, state Senate district they're in. No, I think you're absolutely right. And this goes back to the comment you know, Ted made earlier about you're talking about you know, either stacking voters into one district to get a result or, or cracking them into different districts to get a result. The, the court said you can't, you can't do that for racial reasons, but as of now, you can do it for political reasons. And until the Supreme Court changes its mind uh, and decides that political gerrymandering is unconstitutional, we're going to continue to battle with that. Uh, Newsrix asks on Twitter, could Baker also have been decided based on the guarantee clause? Well, that's, that's the, in fact, there were arguments at the time whether or not uh, the, the guarantee of, of, it's in Article 4, Section 4 of the Constitution, guarantees uh, a Republican form, a Republic form of government. And there were arguments then as opposed, that if that's the provision that ought to be the basis for the subsequent cases as opposed to the Equal Protection Clause, that carries its own complications. And I think probably most of the people at then uh, and most people now would agree that probably the, if we're going to have this outcome, you've got to sort of have to use the 14th Amendment rather than the Guarantee Clause. Robert in Springfield, New Jersey, you're on. Yes, I do agree with the ruling in Baker versus Carr, but... Uh, Related to the earlier uh, speaker's question about Reynolds versus Sim, I am wondering how do our guests view the fact that the Section 2 of the 14th Amendment is a part of the same amendment as the Equal Protection Clause, and it does say that a state's congressional delegation shall be reduced proportionately to the percentage of citizens in that state whose right to vote has been denied or abridged, that does not seem to fully fit together with the concept of the personal right to representation. So what are your views, please? Well, I think, uh, I mean, the, the, what you refer to was obviously intended to make sure that this, the southern states did, in fact, enfranchise um, 
African-Americans. And there were many debates well into the 20th century as the Jim Crow laws disfranchised many of those same folks that perhaps perhaps some of the southern states should le- should lose a, a, a number of their members of Congress. Um, so I think at its root, that that clause is still trying to guarantee the rights of all Americans, um, or at least all American men at that time, to vote. And so I don't, I guess I don't, I'm not quite sure I see the real conflict with that and and the the real heart and soul of Baker and Reynolds and the desire to, you know, make sure that everybody's vote counts equally. I don't see the inconsistency. Yeah. Uh, Randy in Exton, Pennsylvania, our last caller. Randy, are you there? All right, we lost Randy. So... Uh, as we close out here, uh, we talk about this has been an evolution in our country over the time since its case was first decided. So what context do you want to put this in as we close? What's the important thing for people to take away from this first of the several cases that the Warren Court heard? Well, I think going back to the question you asked at the opening, you know, why is, why is Baker v. Carr a landmark case? Why does Earl Warren consider it to be the most vital of the cases that was decided during his time, which you know, most people would probably expect him to choose Brown or one of the many others? And I think because at its, at its heart, what, what, what Warren is getting at is that this case is really about whether or not we are going to continue to live with a system of minority rule. I and mean, it's something we don't think about in the United States. Um, we think about majority rules, minorities have rights, but really what had developed was essentially a, a system of minority rule in most states. And I think what Baker v. Carr and the subsequent reapportionment cases did was to, to correct that. It doesn't mean that the system was perfect as a result, um, but certainly we made enormous strides towards uh, the realization of, of, of real democracy. And what would you say Chief Justice Warren's legacy is in this area? Well, if, if it wasn't for Chief Justice Warren, I don't think we would have ever had this outcome. It's very interesting that the present Supreme Court consists of eight former federal appeals court judges and a dean of the Harvard Law School. Um, That court, I don't think if there was any federal appeals court judges on it, I can't recall who it might have been. There might have been one. Um, But Earl Warren was a former governor. Um, Douglas had been the chairman of the uh, Securities and Exchange Commission. Black had been a former senator. There were a lot of politics in the background of the justices in those days, I wonder if if you had the same composition of the court then that you have today, whether the outcome might have been different. Earl Warren placed a huge stamp, and I think part of it was because he was a politician. Um, he's one of three chief justices that had run for president, by the way. We well, have uh, just two more cases left in our 12-part series. We have the Miranda case, another Earl Warren decision, and it's part of the overhaul of the criminal justice system. We'll talk about his legacy as chief justice in that area. And then our final one is Roe v. Wade uh, in two weeks from now. If you've missed any of our cases and you've been learning along the way, we do have a a book available that is a companion guide to the series, just $8.95. It's available on our website, written by Tony Morrow, veteran Supreme Court reporter. And it has uh, summaries of each of the cases, uh, some highlights of the decision, and what the, Im- the impact or legacy of each case has been. And that's uh, easily available to you as a way to catch up. And then all these cases are posted on our website. As we close out here tonight, I really want to say thank you to Doug Smith for giving us the historical background of this case. Ted Olson for your uh, legal expertise and also for giving us some insight into what it's like to be in the court and how the court operates. Really appreciate that extra color. Thanks for your time tonight.
Our series continues next week with the Supreme Court's 1966 decision in Miranda v. Arizona. The case gave rise to the Miranda warning, now issued upon arrest, after the court ruled 5-4 that suspects must be informed of their rights before they are questioned. Find out more next Monday, live at 9 p.m. Eastern, on C-SPAN, C-SPAN 3, and C-SPAN Radio. You can also learn more about C-SPAN's Landmark Cases series online by going to cspan.org slash landmarkcases. And from the website, you can order C-SPAN's Landmark Cases book, featuring background, highlights, and the legal impact of each case. Written by veteran Supreme Court journalist Tony Morrow and published by C-SPAN in cooperation with CQ Press, Landmark Cases is available for $8.95 plus shipping.